0: Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're absolutely delighted you are with us today. We serve the body of Christ by encouraging and equipping followers of Jesus Christ to live fully and share his winsomeness, his beauty, and his reason. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to past programs, which are also available as podcasts, on your podcast carrier as Hill Country Institute Live. Audio and video from past conferences on faith and culture issues are available at our website as well, along with presentations on the works of C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. Many speakers, including William Lane Craig, Alistair McGrath, Andy Crouch, Jonathan Dodson, and others are featured there. We ask you to consider a donation to support this program. You can donate through our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, or call 512-680-7993. 512-680-7993. If you'd like to sponsor the program, please contact us. Radio stations are our friends. We love them, but they sure like to be paid for the airtime. We've been warned about the dangers of artificial... I'm going to start again. Sorry. We've been warned about the dangers of artificial intelligence by many, including Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates, and Elon Musk, among others. So... In this segment of the program, let's, let's explore what computers in their various forms can and can't do and what humans do, which is unique. So, Dr. Marks, thank you for being with us, and welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live. Thank you much. So one of the, one of the things we talked about earlier were, were algorithms and what computers can do and some things that maybe they can't do. So what are there things that maybe computers will never be able to do?
1: Well, I think maybe the biggest, um, the biggest testable thing that computers will never be able to do is creativity. Computers uh, only; it, 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 they can only take the data which they've been presented and interpolate. They can't, if you will, think outside of the box. And if you look at the history of creativity, like great scientists like the Galileo and, the, uh, and uh, Einstein and such, they actually had to take the data that they were given They had to discard it, and they came up with something which was brand new. So it wasn't just a reshuffling of the status quo, which is basically what a computer can do. It was actually a creative act outside of the available data. I think another thing a computer can't do, I have a whole list of them. I think another one is qualia, which is a word I just learned. Uh, Qualia is kind of the subjective experience that one has in themselves. Imagine, for example, having a big, delicious red apple, and you anticipate taking the bite out of it. And you take the bite, you feel the crispness, you feel the the tart sweetness, you feel the crunch as you chew it and swallow it. That is an experience. And the question is, do you think you could ever write an algorithm to explain that claw experience to a computer? I don't think so. I -hmm. think that that is something which is unique to the human being. Uh, So that creativity qualia um, understanding I think that you mentioned that Jay talked about in his book I'm not sure about this interview but he talked about Searle's uh, uh, Chinese room John Searle was a philosopher and he said that uh, he said that there is no way that a computer understands anything and he illustrated with the Chinese room but the basic idea was you slipped a little, A little slip of paper in which there was something written in Chinese through a little slot. Inside the room, somebody picked it up and they looked at it and they wanted to translate it to something, say, like Portuguese. So there's a big bunch of file cabinets in the room. And uh, maybe people still know what file cabinets are, but uh, what the person in the room did is took this little sheet. Or this little sheet that had this Chinese on it, and he did a pattern matching. He went through it. He looked through all the file cabinets, and he finally found a a um, something that matched the little sheet of paper that he had. And with that little sheet of paper was the translation into Portuguese. So he took the little translation in Portuguese. He wrote it down. He refiled the original things. Went to the uh, went to the door and slipped out the translation into the Portuguese. Now, externally. The person would say, my gosh, this guy knows Chinese, he knows Portuguese, this computer is really, really smart. But internally, the guy that was actually going to the file cabinets, doing the pattern matching, in order to find out what the translation was, had no idea what Chinese was, had no idea what Portuguese was. Uh, he was just following a bunch of instructions. And uh, that is basically the concept of understanding. Uh Let's
0: see. So the so the computer processes. It turns out work product based on how it's directed. But in terms of understanding, as we think of understanding, like you would expect one of your students to understand and uh, what you're teaching, uh, they they don't understand. They compute. They process data. Is that is that a fair way of putting it?
1: Absolutely. There was a great columnist uh, about twenty years ago that commented on. Deep Blue beating Kasparov, who was the world champion of chess at the time. And Deep Blue was trained to play chess. And uh, Glentner wrote a great column. He said, look, the idea that Deep Blue has a mind is just totally absurd. He feels nothing, knows nothing. He plays... He plays chess for the same reason a toaster toasts. That was the way he was programmed to do it. He isn't happy he wins. He isn't sad he loses. If he wins, he doesn't—I love this phrase. He says if he wins, he doesn't plan a night on the town with deep— Pink, which <laughs> obviously, obviously, be his uh, his girlfriend. No, there's there, there's no adulation. There's no mind there. It's just like Searle's uh, Chinese Room. You also might be familiar with Watson, IBM Watson, meeting yes. the world champions at uh, at Jeopardy. If you think about it, that's just a big Chinese Room. Except it isn't a Chinese Room. You have all of Wikipedia and all the internet available to you, and you're you're given some sort of uh, question on Jeopardy, and you have to get the answer. And so you look around till there's a pattern matching, and then you bring back the uh, the answer to the question. So uh, the the Watson beating the world champions in uh, Jeopardy is exactly an example of a Chinese room, except the room is a lot bigger because computers are a lot faster and could do a lot better things.
0: Sure, and Watson Watson had a built in advantage then by having. Uh, uh, it may not be infinite, but it would seem virtually infinite information available to it to to do those matches
1: yes, and oh i I learned this. I read a book by uh and I would recommend it. It's called the AI Delusion by Roger Smith, and he pointed out, and I never knew this before that the people that did uh, IBM Watson were a little bit concerned because sometimes when you present things to the computer, there's ambiguity. Uh, I'll go back now to Fred Flintstone to illustrate that. There was a Fred Flintstone cartoon where he got his fingers stuck, glued, inside a bowling ball. And he told Barney Rubble, he said, okay, we got to get this off. They tried pulling it and everything. So Barney got a big hammer, and Fred said, when I nod my head, hit it. And the idea there was, of course, course the idea was that the vague pronoun, it. And so... When you present things to a computer that don't have context, like when I nod my head and hit it. By the way, Barney did hit Fred in the head. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when you present things like that to a computer, they don't—they uh, they, they, don't—they don't know how to respond, as Roger Smith pointed it out in his uh, his really really great book. Um, so one of the things that the Watson programmers did, according to Roger Smith, as they said, look, we don't want any questions asked in the jeopardy contest that are confusing like this and the Jeopardy people says, yeah, but you don't want to fix the game by removing questions like that. And so they actually arrived at the compromise that they would actually go back and look at old questions that were from Jeopardy programs that hadn't been asked yet. So this wouldn't be a topic when these people put together the questions for the contest between Watson and the other participants. So even there, we see the inability of computers to do things that Humans are able to do at least in the case of Watson for that example.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's one there's one other game example that uh, comes up quite a bit in the literature, and that's the game Go. Uh, it, and apparently, Go is is the most complicated game, and and, and a computer did did very well. So, uh, is that just an extension of the same same idea that it, it was able to to match uh, possible outcomes and evaluate the best of those, or? or Or what? How do
1: you look at that? Yeah, Go Go is a remarkable computer achievement. I don't want to degrade this at all. They used a concept called reinforcement learning. And this reinforcement learning was used in uh, chess. It was used in Go. Uh, It was actually used to win old arcade games. That just by looking at the pixels in an arcade game, such as oh, I don't know Pac-Man for example, that the computer could learn how to win. Now, in all of these cases, of course, there was the concept of the rules. You got to know the rules, and the fact that Go was mastered by the program is an incredible accomplishment of, of computer science. However, notice that the computer is doing exactly what it was programmed to do. It was programmed to play Go. It's a very narrow application of artificial intelligence. And I would be impressed if the computer program would pass something called the Lovelace Test, which is the test that computer programs are given for, uh, to test their creativity. And the Lovelace Test basically says that you have seen creativity if the computer program does something that can't be explained by the programmers. Now you might get some some surprising results. There were some surpri- some surprising results that AlphaGo used when it played the master, and uh, but surprising, you know, it doesn't count. It's still in the game of Go. Uh, if if Go had gone on to do something like let let me make the point by exaggeration, if Go went on, if if the Go program went on to give you investment advice or to uh, forecast the weather without additional programming. That would be an example of AI creativity. Now, there's some that think that so-called general AI in the future is going to accomplish that, But uh, we're just kind of waiting and seeing. We see a lot in AI, the so-called algorithm of the gaps. We say, yeah, we can do this now, but someday we will have an algorithm that can do all of this other stuff. And this algorithm of the gaps is used to substantiate the future of artificial intelligence and not really realizing that this algorithm of the gaps, that if it actually is used to augment what computer programs do, will actually be the result of human creativity. Algorithms and computers are the result of human creativity. And that is not a controversial viewpoint. Nadella, who is, I believe his name is Nadella, he is the current CEO of Microsoft. He says, he says the same thing. He says that, look, computers are never going to be creative. Creativity will always be at the domain of the programmer. So that's probably more than you wanted to know, but that's that's my explanation of uh, AlphaGo and what it is doing. No, I
0: think it, this is absolutely fascinating, uh, and and it's uh, I don't think there's anything that could be more contemporary, uh, more current for us to deal with, because AI comes up and 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 literally I've 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 you know been in exchanges, uh, particularly on Facebook with uh, non Christians, and they just say AI is going to wipe out your faith. And uh, and I'm so I'm delighted to think about what AI is, what AI isn't, and and these limitations. Uh, in in thinking about art, uh, particularly, uh, in the uh, Guardian yesterday, there there was uh, an article uh, about art that's being created uh, using AI. And uh, there are there are apparently two networks, and they interact with each other, and and they develop uh, a lot of images, you know, thousands of images, and then the person working with it picks the the ones that they like, and they've sold some for thousands of dollars at uh, at, at some of the auction houses, and so what what I guess you know this has the appearance of quote creativity, but yet it, it's if if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying, these programs, uh, these networks have been designed to make art, to put pixels together. They may not understand what they're doing, but you, if if you teach them more about what they're, what you want, their program will, will will grow in some fashion. Uh, is that fair? Is that a good way to put well, it?
1: Well, it, it it will grow as long, as long as it's guided by the human programmer. Okay. And so you notice that the human programmer is the one that, um, that controls what's happening. Let me comment on the ability of computers to generate art. Uh, let me begin with the illustration of music. Let me tell you a typical scenario of training like a neural network to actually do a composition. Usually a neural network is presented a genre of different... Types of music, say, for example, the works of Bach, and then it looks at all of that, and you ask it to generate some music, and guess what that music sounds like? It sounds like Bach. Surprise. Surprise, exactly. It's the same thing with these, uh, well, so let me address the creativity before I go into the art. Um, Yeah, so it creates music which sounds like Bach. That program will never be creative. It will never create music which is written by a Wagner, or a Schoenberg, or some of my favorite people, uh, Schnittke, or some of <laughs> the modern composers like uh, like uh, Charles Ives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it won't. It is constrained, if you will, to think inside that box. It doesn't. It doesn't throw away old conventions to do something new and creative. It is constrained to be that way. I would maintain, although I don't know the details of the art, except what I've read in the literature, that the same thing is happening in this creation of art. It is being fed a number of pictures from a number of from, from genres, and guess what it generates? It generates something that is part of that genre. It isn't, it isn't creative. It doesn't go from the work of a da Vinci to a Picasso, which certainly involved... Uh, Involve creativity, so the AI will never be able to be trained in works and paintings of a Da Vinci or a Michelangelo, and then spit out works that are done by a Picasso, because that is just too big of a jump. That's creativity, and creativity is something which computers will never, never accomplish to a high degree.
0: So, as as you're explaining it, I'm thinking that a that a computer is as good as its programmer. It's good at matching. It's good at putting things together. But true creativity—what what the uh, entrepreneur Peter Thiel refers to as uh, a lot of people can take us from one to infinite, but it's that zero to one that it, that is creativity in the tech world, in the business world, that uh, that sets us apart. And and in that verbiage, then a computer can't take us from zero to one. It needs instructions, doesn't it?
1: It does. And in fact, uh, Peele's book, uh, I think it's called From Zero to One. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he, he talks about the requirement of creativity. And his philosophy is parallel to that of some other people, Jay Richards, for example, who you've interviewed, mm-hmm. and uh, and George Gilter, who look at business in a very different way. It turns out that some people look at a business is kind of a Darwinian competition, who survives uh, is going to be the rich person. Uh, Peter Thiel and Jay Richards and George Gilder say, no, what drives entrepreneurism is creativity. You come up with a new idea like a PayPal or a Facebook or something or Uber, mm-hmm. and you come out, and you develop that. Is, is It is that creative aspect that is mandatory in order for you to have thriving uh, economies and great entrepreneurship, and those that creativity in business is never going to come from a computer. A computer would have never come up with the idea. Well, would never have come up with the idea of Uber unless the programmer programmed it to look in a you know a set of different things. I mean, that was something which was creative, which was above and beyond uh, the the algorithmic. So, uh, so we see this idea of the inability of humans. I'm sorry. The inability of computers to create manifests itself not only in artificial intelligence but also in business and entrepreneurship, and in a number of other different places. Well, we Jay, are fearfully and wo- fearfully and wonderfully made, as the Bible says. Yes.
0: And Jay, Jay, in Jay Richards' book, "The Human Advantage," he he has countless examples of entrepreneurs seeing a need and then filling that need, and that and that's totally against the idea that capitalism is just about greed. Uh, and and he he made the case that ca- capitalism or free market enterprise is really uh altruistic that uh, the best entrepreneurs actually fill in a need so that's reality isn't it
1: yes it is yes it is
0: well let me let me ask the question about ai a little bit differently uh self learning a computer teaching itself to do something different uh a way that the the programmer's not uh, foreseen. Uh, there's a uh, a program called Deep Patient, uh, and it's it's a way of uh, uh, managing information uh, on the medical side, and a couple other programs that I read about, and they solve the problem, but they 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 aren't uh, they aren't doing it in a way that the developer of the network can explain. Now, does that imply that there's a, a, a learnability going on in there, some some way that they're doing it? Or is everything that they're doing, even if it's not fully understood by the developer, still subject to the way that the developer set up the network?
1: Well, one of the things we have to differentiate here is the difference between surprise and creativity. I've certainly written computer programs that have the element of surprise at them. I look at them And I say, wow, look at what it's doing. But then I look at the program and say, yep, this was one of the solutions that I I, um, considered. One of the ideas, especially in computer search, is to lay out thousands, maybe millions, or billions of potential different solutions. And you don't know what the effect of those solutions are going to be. It would be almost like uh, putting out a bunch of different recipes for cake. You had different amounts of... Batter, different amounts of milk, number of different eggs, the amount of oil that you put in, etc. And what you want to do is you want to figure out what the best one is. So if you have no domain expertise, if you want to walk around in this in the search space and try to be, find the best combination, you might get something which is totally unexpected. We did something in swarm intelligence, which is what which is modeling um, a social. Uh, social insects. We actually applied evolutionary computing, which is an area in electrical engineering. And we evolved dweebs. It was a predator-prey sort of problem, and our our prey was the dweebs, and our predator was the bullies. The bullies would chase around the dweebs. And we would uh, evolve and try to figure out what was the best way for the dweeb colony of uh, the colony swarmed to survive the longest. And the result that we got was astonishing and very surprising. What happened was that um, there was self sacrifice that the dweebs learned. One dweeb would run around the playground and be chased by the bullies and self sacrifice himself. And then, I, I guess dweebs are males because I said himself. Uh, so, So they would kill the dweeb, and then there would be other dweebs which would come out, and individually they would self-sacrifice themselves, but by using up all of the time in order to survive, the colony of dweebs survive for a very, very long time, which was exactly what we told it to do. Now, once we looked at that, we were surprised by the result, but we looked back at the code and we said, yeah, of these thousands, millions of different solutions that we proposed, yeah, we see how this one was... Uh, Gave us the surprise. So surprise can't be um, can't be confused with creativity. If the surprise is something which is in the domain of what the programmer decided to program, then it really isn't creativity. The program has just found one of those millions of solutions that work really good and possibly a surprising manner.
0: Well, it, it seems in some way that that uh, God is the ultimate creator. And he's given us license and uh, responsibility to be creative with this world and and universe and all that's in it that that he's given us. And so uh, we may surprise him with something that we do, uh, but he knows the capabilities that we have already. how How much is that an analogy to the developer of uh, a neural network or or any other uh, type of uh, computing capability?
1: Well, the neural network is referred to sometimes as a black box. You get responses out, you're really not sure where they come from. But if you get a response out, it was because you trained the neural network to do that. Mm-hmm. So certainly certainly, that's the case. In terms of the Lovelace test, this is something I've been thinking about. Remember the Lovelace test, which was a test of creativity, where the computer program does something that um, that the programmer cannot cannot. Explain? It doesn't understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. they they can't explain it, and I think probably everything that we can do in a theological sense, God can explain. But I was thinking about our creativity, and uh, God is our quote unquote programmer. We're more than a computer program, of course, but but as our programmer could look inside of us and see see what happens and see uh, what the what the consequences of our programming is going to do. So. That, that's an interesting problem, one that I haven't explored in depth and one I need to think about a little bit more.
0: Sure. Thank you. Well, um, I'd, I'd like to ask you about ethics and AI. Uh, China has a, a massive data collection system, and the data that they gather uh, is ultimately used to determine who does the bidding of the state and therefore how they're treated for employment, for loans, and so on. Uh, so the power of the state there is uh, is uh, kind of like Big Brother on uh, high-tech steroids, to 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 borrow from C.S. Lewis, it's like man's power over nature is the power of some man over others, and so should we should we be concerned that uh, AI can be misused, uh, and and how do how would we prepare for that?
1: Absolutely, I think any new technology is not good nor bad; it's how you use it. I mean, you could you could talk about fire, electricity, and a number of other technologies. They're neither good nor bad. It's how how mankind uses it. And so that's the decision that we have to make. Insofar as ethics, um, AI has no ethics. The ethics belong to the computer programmer. There is the old story about the trolley problem, where you uh, you see a trolley going to... To impact the bus, which is full of three babies and two mommies, and you have the ability to throw a little switch to derail the trolley to go on another track. But on that track is a guy has fainted, and he turns out to be the world's greatest uh, researcher in cancer curing. And so the question is, is do you throw the switch or not? Mm -hmm. And that's a a question which we can debate back and forth at nausea. The so I don't have I, I don't have the solution for that. That's for people that like to argue and go back and forth about such things. But if that switch were programmed to be controlled by an artificial intelligence, the decision would be that of the programmer and the ethics of the programmer. It would not be of the AI that controlled the switch. And so this is something that um, something that we're going to have to be able to uh, look at and examine it a little bit closer. So the ethics is mm-hmm. the, the yeah the ethics is always going to belong to the programmer. We're seeing this, for example, in self driving cars. Um, self driving cars are always going to kill people, always because there's they they have a intelligence and that intelligence is going to let it survive. But there's always going to be contingencies or cases where that artificial intelligence hasn't uh, hasn't been trained to anticipate. So the question is. Um, how many people do you let the AI kill before you adopt the self-driving car? That's a very nice ethical question. And the answer is probably when the AI kills maybe a lot less than human drivers do, maybe we can, we can adopt it then. But again, this is, a, this is a task of the computer programmer, the people that do these AI sort of programs. So ethics always belongs to the computer program, always belongs to the human. And if it does something um, unexpected, well, then that's something that you have to fix. If you have a dumb programmer, the AI will do dumb things. If you have a smart program, hopefully they will do smart things, which embraces all contingencies or all probable contingencies, if you will. So the self-driving car is indeed safe.
0: Well, it goes back to C.S. Lewis, the men without chess. If we don't uh, teach ethics and doing the right thing, then it will come out in, in the program just like it comes out in our personal life,
1: doesn't it? Yes, yes. That's a good point.
0: Well, Bob, this, is, this has just been fascinating. Uh, I, I thank you so much for our time. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid we need to stop, and uh, I do hope we can visit again sometime. Uh, I wish you all the best with the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence, and I, I do hope that uh, that center will, will help Christians, non-Christians, the whole world to, to think through the kind of issues you're just talking about.
1: Well, that's what we hope to do. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you. God bless. And thanks to all of you for being with us today. I hope you'll visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to podcasts of our previous programs and on iTunes and other podcast providers as Hill Country Institute Live. We have audio and video from past conferences on faith and culture issues. And we also uh, deal with lots of topics of concerns, such as the environment, scholarship, stewardship, and fighting human trafficking. We ask for your financial support for this program so we may pay the radio stations and continue to be on the air. You can donate on our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, and by calling 512-680-7993. That's 512-680-7993. For donations of $100 or more, uh, we have a book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines, by Jay Richards, which continues the discussion and looks at it from a few different angles of how we deal with artificial intelligence and technology. Thank you again for being with us for Hill Country Institute Live. We encourage you to share the love and wisdom of Jesus Christ wherever God calls you to.